I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. to be reading today's scripture. Uh, we've just moved into a new house, so ignore this crazy stuff all around me. But today's scripture comes from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Every seventh year you shall grant a remission of debts, and this is the manner of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the claim that is held against a neighbor, not exacting it of a neighbor who is a member of the community, because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but you must remit your claim on whatever any member of your community owes you. There will, however, be no one in need among you, because the Lord is sure to bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you possession to occupy. If only you obey the Lord your God by diligently observing this entire commandment that I command you today. When the Lord your God has blessed you as he promised you, you will lend to many nations but you will not borrow. You will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some need of the, on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor 
in your land. This is the word of God to the people of God. Thanks be to God. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house Well, most of y'all probably know that we bought a house in Alexandria about a month ago now. And so this past week, we finally got to meet our neighbors. A group of us gathered for happy hour in the cul-de-sac. And, and to our surprise, <laughs> a significant part of the conversation was the people who lived in our house before us. As the stories went, they enjoyed their extracurricular activities and there were always strange cars pulling up and making exchanges and then leaving. Basically, my neighbors were trying to tell us how, how grateful they were that the previous owners sold the house because they're renters, I guess. Um, mostly the guys, the women dated. They, they kind of created an environment the neighborhood wasn't fond of. Most significant of which was related to this string of, of car break-ins that some of my neighbors swear were the result of the people who lived in the house before us. One night last year during the height of COVID, my neighbor Clara was up late hanging out, you know, with some of her Pacific time zone family on Zoom. And just before she went to bed, she goes outside at 2 a.m. to get something that she needed from her car. And sitting inside her car with the door wide open, rummaging through every little compartment in her car and, and looking for whatever was valuable enough to sell, was one of the guys that frequented what is now our lovely home. Can you imagine? She went on to tell me how she, how she went and got her gun and so on, but, but, but what a story, right? Which brings me to, to the eighth commandment today in this series that we've been working through on the 10 commandments. I know you know what the eighth commandment is, right? You've, got them all memorized in order. The eighth commandment is, you shall not steal. And at first reading, right, it seems pretty simple. What comes to mind is a story much like my neighbor's story in the cul-de-sac on Friday of a guy sitting in our car rummaging through our belongings and taking what does not belong to him. You shall not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. I mean, these are some of the most basic initial lessons that we teach our kids in the earliest days of, of daycare, right? That, that is not yours. <laughs> you do not get to take that. Stealing is wrong. You do not get to rob your neighbor of what is theirs. We teach this to our kids early on. And it's true. The earliest rabbis for whom these commandments were life they, they did believe, unlike many early Christians, that property was important and, that, and they could find spiritual 
value in property. Unlike the early Christians, these rabbis didn't take vows of poverty. They, they were so committed to a strong concept of property, right, that, that, that they insisted that the only way to atone for the sin of theft was by returning the property to its rightful owner, even if it seemed absolutely impossible to do so. Even if someone stole a wooden beam and built it into the city capital, the capital must even be torn down so that the beam can be returned to its rightful owners, they taught in all of its hyperbole, right? These rabbis even believed that there was a connection between one's property and one's spirit. One rabbi declared that, that anyone who steals, anyone who steals a shavpruta, that is one of the smallest units of value, anyone who s- steals even a, a shavpruta from his friend, it is as, as though he has taken the soul of his friend. And so, yeah, the rabbis cared about property and they cared about stealing and they would have surely condemned the dude in Clara's car, right? But when it comes to the eighth commandment, God, God handing down this blueprint for a good and a just society saying, I'm, I, I, I command you, do not steal. In this society, you shall not steal. This kind of stealing of, of breaking into someone's car or taking someone's shavpruta is actually not how the earliest Israelites would have understood it. According to these rabbis, the Eighth Commandment is not about stealing as much as it is about kidnapping. Now, there is nothing in the text that suggests this. There's nothing that would suggest that you shall not steal as anything other than what it sounds like. Even, even the Hebrew verb here, ganav, is used in, in the Bible almost exclusively to describe the theft of things, of belongings. But the rabbis insist that this commandment is about something else, and they insist on this because there was already law prohibiting stealing. In any number of verses that they could go back to that explicitly prohibited theft, And so the rabbis asked a good question. Why then would it appear in the Ten Commandments? Why? And so the rabbis thought, God must be getting at something different here. Everything else has been about about person. Here, maybe God is etching into those ancient tablets like Jesus was known to say, you've heard it said, do not steal another's cattle. But I say to you, you shall not steal another's person or said another way you shall not steal their personhood it's safe to assume as the rabbis did that god is getting at something deeper here according to one rabbi the eighth commandment is referring specifically to to the case of one man who kidnapped someone for the purpose of selling him as a slave another rabbi added that you know when when you truly violate the eighth commandment It's when you take possession of a person through one of the formal acts of acquisition outlined in the Jewish law and you treat him as if he were your own property. These simple words, you shall not steal. And they transformed within the imagination of those who read them and taught them into this complete denouncement 
of subordinating another human being for your own expansion until they are not human at all, but rather a thing to own. As a new mom, I, I can already imagine how difficult it's going to be on every level of Olive's development at every age to teach her that the universe does not revolve around her. My universe does, right? But it's gonna be, it's gonna be so hard to teach her that the universe does not revolve around her, whether it's when she's a, a toddler having tantrums about toys that have been returned to their rightful owner, or when, or when she's a teenager <laughs> flying into a rage because I won't buy her the clothing that she wants, for which she has no conceivable need. It's going to be difficult to, to teach her that she isn't the center of the universe. And that's because we are all hardwired to survive and, and satisfy our desires and to exist within and for ourselves. And the first step in emerging beyond this, this natural state is, is learning to recognize that other people are worlds all unto themselves as well and that, and that they have rights and feelings and dreams and belongings of their own. One rabbi captures this idea by telling this story. Marzutra, the pious, had a purse full of silver stolen from him at his guest house. And so later, Marzutra, he, he saw one of the fellow tenants wash his hands and then wipe his hands on the clothing of, of someone he called his friend. And Marzutra, the pious, said, that man, he must be the one who stole the silver, for he does not care about the property of his fellow human being. And, and they bound up the tenant. And in fact, can, he confessed to stealing the purse full of silver. Obviously, wiping your hands on a friend's shirt is ridiculous and inconsiderate and selfish. But, but what exactly is the problem? Surely it is not the cost of to, to his property, the cost of his property. He, he neither stole nor damaged the friend's shirt by wiping his hands on it. But it's this brazen, this brazen dehumanization of his friend who is suddenly reduced to a towel in his eyes. This is what Marzutra's alarm bells, this is why they go off and what leads him to finding his thief. For the rabbi, the spirit and property are connected. And many of us will feel uncomfortable with this. With any biblical reading that would, that would uplift property and wealth. After all, Jesus and Socrates and Buddha, right? They all shunned material success for the success of the soul. But we can't ignore that the Old Testament, many, many of the key characters in, in these stories are wealthy and the Bible goes out of its way to describe the riches of Abraham and Jacob and Solomon. There, there is something very appealing to sweeping away all our material commitments and, and, and repudiating property, of making it of little value and thus making stealing a lesser offense. But there are also good reasons for why the Israelite approach ha has stood its ground over time and how overwhelmingly the Western world has maintained faithful to it. Not as much because the Western world's dominated by greed. 
but rather that there is something intuitively true. Intuitively true about a world that sees material property as central to the affirmation of life and sees respect for property as the foundation stone for respecting the humanity in others. And perhaps the Israelite approach to property would have outlasted the teachings of Jesus and of Socrates and of Buddha, right? If it had not been for one single overwhelmingly horrible thing about our world. And it's that for all the spiritual goods that affirming property seems to give us, we know this is not the whole story, right? We know that for every material success we achieve, there is someone else who has failed, We know that all around us are people who are poor, people we encounter on the street of every city, or people we never see who who nonetheless endure hardships. Endure hardships we can't even imagine. Or or perhaps we have been there ourselves at some point, or or are there now, and, and we still have the taste of destitution in our mouths, the sense of knowing just how sharply The suffering of the poor clashes against the accumulations of so many people. And and when we succeed, we know that our financial success comes against the backdrop of so many others who do not feel successful and therefore do not feel human. The pain of poverty is unique to each experience, right? Right? The unpayable bills, the need to turn to friends and family for support, the the humiliation before indifferent bank managers and creditors, the the mental wreckage of unemployment, the the shelving of dreams and and plans to, to say no to our children about things we always assumed we could give them. The the constant tightening and retightening, the inability to think about anything else. The lost sleep, the massive fights with spouses, the temptations to escape into gambling or drugs or drink, though we know they will only make things worse. It all dehumanizes. And and instead of material expansion being integrated with this very real human level, it often comes at its expense, undermining friendships and causing already wealthy people to, to dedicate too much time at the office and too little time at home, or preventing them from developing any real relationships with others who are in need. This is the cycle of poverty of which we all are a part which brings us to our scripture today. The Bible actually anticipates this and offers a response to property that helps us better understand the eighth commandment. According to the biblical law, once every seven years, all loans are to be forgiven as a kind of amnesty that, um, that constitutes part of the Bible's relief to the poor. And yet there is this this obvious problem, right? As the sabbatical year draws near, people will be far less likely to lend money to someone whose ability to pay them back quickly is suspect. And so the writer of Deuteronomy says this, Beware that there not be an unworthy thought in your heart, 
saying the seventh year and the year of release is at hand. Oh, and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. You shall surely give to him and your heart shall not grieve when you give to him for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore, I, I commend you saying you shall open your hands wide to your brother, to your poor and to your needy neighbor in the land. When the ancient rabbis heard the eighth commandment, they would have known it to be an indictment of slavery. But they would have also heard it as this uplifting of the poor. Ringing in the back of their minds would, would have been the words of the law in Deuteronomy in which charity to and justice for and with the poor is lifted as the highest form of righteousness. Even the one who is poor, who himself receives charity, is obligated to give charity as well. For in giving, we establish our own humanity. And this is something even the poor must do. It's the assumption that helping others is this universal obligation. And that no matter how poor you become, poor in wealth, in health, in spirit, one never loses their fundamental status as a human being capable of redemption. In other words, charity and service is an expression of our self-expansion, not, not our self-negation. Think about it, though, for just a second. This is very different from the ancient Christian concepts of charity, isn't it? In Christianity, charity and service and justice to neighbor has always been seen as this act of grace by which we, we the individual, give as an act of self-negation, transforming ourselves into vessels for the transformation of the world. But the rabbis taught that the greatest form of charity, which is what we call it, but which is a word they would never have used, the greatest form of charity is in, in, in upholding, uplifting the dignity of the human being. That, that their ability to advance and to participate and to earn and to give and to vote and to work and to own and to take part in society is, is the first thing we ought to give our energy and our money toward, preserving for all for it is what makes us all human. Unlike the early Christians, the rabbis didn't put spirituality and materiality at odds with each other, but understood property having something that someone else might want or want to steal as being a part of what it means to be human. But, but expanding ourselves materially also has its downfalls, right? Which brings us back to the Eighth Commandment and why we need it so much. The problem is that in, in expanding ourselves materially, we have all too often neglected the duty of expanding ourselves on this very real human level as well. The rabbis don't make wealth the enemy as long as, as only meant to, to, to encourage us to to, 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 to give our lives on the human level to love and to protect people the way we love and protect things. 
And the moment we see our wealth and our earnings and our property and our successes and our security as the main focus of our individual expansion, we have, we have dehumanized our fellow human. We have stolen their personhood and we have missed the entire point of God's provision in our lives. Last week, we talked about the seventh commandment and how at the core of this command, you shall not commit adultery is really just this intimate and, and very expanding, embracing love, right? But today, the eighth commandment moves us in almost the opposite direction, holding that love accountable and restraining that personal, passionate love in order to make room for others. But you shall not commit adultery and you shall not steal are not contradictory to each other. That they're meant to, to work in tandem. The most difficult problem of love is, is the sense of superiority. The feeling that having embraced someone else and taken responsibility for their well-being. That, that like property we become owners of the people we love. And so the eighth commandment reminds us that. A central part of love is respect. That we cannot really love one another until we take responsibility for not only their material and physical welfare, but also their their growth, their their spiritual independence and well-being. If you love someone, the Bible says, set them free. But if love without respect is crushing... Respect without love is alienating. If the eighth commandment gives the seventh commandment its direction and maybe even its legitimacy and the affirmation of the other as free, the seventh commandment gives the the eighth commandment the possibility of redemption. What we learn from the ancient biblical attitude towards wealth and property is that for all its concern, For proper boundaries and mutual respect, all its prohibitions of stealing, there is really just this simple mandate to love, to care sincerely about our neighbor, to respect the decisions and their autonomy, to make it clear we will be there for them if they are in trouble, to give generously of our time and money to those in need, letting them know they are never alone. That there is always hope. Giving the, the respect and honor due every human. I offer this to you in the name of God our Father, in the name of Christ his Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we know that you care so deeply about about our person, our personhood, our humanity, and our dignity. And as imitators, God, of your redemption, call us into lives that care about that as well, that make room for others. What a prayer. God, make me a person that makes room for others. And I join with you in that prayer that that Jesus taught us to pray that was really about making room for others. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Table of the Lord. There is peace.